0: If you ever find yourself in Porto, Portugal, you should have dinner at the old Café Imperial Building. I don't know if any of you have ever been before, but the building is quite lovely. It's world-renowned, in fact, for uh, the beautiful, mesmerizing stained-glass windows, the the glorious uh, chandeliers that hang down from the ceiling with such grace. The entrance is marked by a luxurious Uh, uh, archway that is an echo from generations in the past. People come from far and wide to eat in such a beautiful structure. But there's one thing you should know before you make dinner plans at the old Cafe Imperial Building. The restaurant that you would actually be eating at is not what you would expect. It's a McDonald's. No, you are not going to get filet mignon, you are not going to get lobster, you are not going to find much fine dining, but you can find a 10-piece McNuggets, a Big Mac, or a Happy Meal if that is what would suit your fancy. Nonetheless, you can enjoy your Big Mac while sitting under those graceful chandeliers and beholding the scenery that is around you. The McDonald's in Porto, Portugal is regarded as the most beautiful McDonald's in the world. The food is the same as any normal McDonald's that you would find in any city or on any state highway throughout the U.S., but there's a difference that makes this McDonald's distinct. You may feel when it comes to your life, when it comes to your resume, as you seek to serve and follow Jesus, you might feel that you don't have much of a resume, in fact. Perhaps you feel that you're a little bland like McDonald's and you don't dazzle like a Michelin-starred restaurant, the wonder of following Jesus, the wonder of being His disciple is not you, it's Him. You might be just like that McDonald's, but as a follower of Jesus, you are enmeshed with the glories that far exceed what we bring to the table. What we are going to see from this passage from Luke 5, 1 through11, is that Jesus makes seemingly unfit people to be His disciples. Let me say this again: Jesus makes seemingly unfit people to be His disciples. Follow along as I read from Luke chapter five, verses one through 11. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him near to hear the word of God, "'He was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. "'And he saw two boats by the lake, "'but the fishermen had gone out of them "'and were washing their nets. "'Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, "'he asked him to put out a little from the land. "'And he sat down and taught the people from the boat. "'And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, "'Put out, put out into the deep and let your nets down for it catch. "'And Simon answered, "'Master, we to- toiled all night and took nothing.' And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. Remember, Jesus makes seemingly unfit people to be his disciples. And we see this first by seeing how Jesus specifically pursues his disciples. You see this in verses 1 through 5. If you were to read the first few verses of Luke 5, it looks as if a similar scene is unfolding on the shore of Lake Gennesaret, which is also the Sea of Galilee, uh, as happened elsewhere in these early days of Jesus' ministry. People are gathering around him to hear him teach. But there's something that we need to note about how this scene unfolds. Do you see how the story progresses from a large crowd gathering around the shore to seeing two boats, to Jesus seeing two boats, to Jesus getting into the boat that belonged to Simon. We record this, and this is not an accident that it's noted that he got into Simon's boat. It makes sense, seemingly read straightforward. The boat would give Jesus more distance from the crowd so that he could be better heard by all who are gathering around and pressing in on the shore. But then, strangely, I want you to see this. Luke records nothing of the substance of what Jesus taught. He tells us the crowd was gathering, but he doesn't tell us their reaction to his teaching. But verse 4 tells us Jesus finished speaking to the crowd and then turned his, turned his attention to Simon. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And so we see nothing of what he taught. We hear nothing of what the crowds heard. The focus is now entirely on Simon. We have met Simon, or uh, Simon Peter as he's referred to later in this passage, and If you're familiar with your New Testaments, Peter plays a significant role throughout the rest of the story of Jesus's disciples, his apostles, of of, of the unfolding and the building and the establishing of the church after Jesus ascended to heaven. But this is our introduction, really, to Simon. In Luke chapter 4, sure, verse 38 and 39, Jesus came to his home and healed his mother-in-law, who was sick with a high fever, but Simon is not recorded as speaking there, but now we learn more about him as he becomes a disciple of Jesus. And it starts by Jesus, as we see him addressing the crowds, he now addresses Simon. And in this, we start to see how Jesus specifically pursues his disciples. Truthfully, we don't know whether, whether Simon was listening to Jesus as he began. Simon and the other fishermen, were told, are cleaning their nets off to the side. Were they cleaning their nets waiting for the teaching to begin? I don't know. I don't want to Cast Simon in too negative of a light. But what we do see here is as Jesus turns his attention to Simon, we see and we are reminded of the fact that for us who are Christians, it is no accident that we are followers of Christ. Dear Christians, sitting here right here today, it is no accident that you are a follower of Christ. You follow Christ because he has first pursued you. Give thought even this moment, to how you became a Christian? What relationships can you trace the story of your life? uh, Trace that story and see various relationships in your life, various decisions you made about work, about school, about where you would live, all sorts of things that all led to a point where even unbeknownst to you, God was sovereignly working out your circumstances and bringing you to this place where you would follow him. Many of us probably would say we were not able to choose the relationships that God used to bring us to faith. We did not choose our parents. We did not choose our grandparents. Perhaps you came to faith through the testimony or the witness of a co-worker, but you did not know that that co-worker would have such an influence upon you when you took the job. Whatever it is, so oftentimes when we start to think that we look upon our lives and we see how we became followers of Christ, we actually see if we're more honest, it's a story of God pursuing us, and navigate and working through our circumstances, and bringing us to faith in Him as a testimony to His goodness and His providential hand directing our steps. We see this in Peter's life. He is a fisherman who lived in a small town. One day, Jesus shows up and heals his mother-in-law of sickness. Then he's at work one day, having come in from a long night of fishing and not catching anything, and he's cleaning his nets. He's probably ready to go home and get some rest, and then Jesus gets in his boat. It's funny to consider how sometimes how Jesus specifically pursues his disciples. We can think of the way that sometimes we can have this imagery in our mind of how somebody becomes a Christian, and it's it's like there, there's this opportunity that stands before them, the door is open, the gates are open, and all right, everybody get in, everybody get in before, before it's too late. I, I, sometimes for reasons I don't know, maybe just the weirdness of my own mind, I think of the, when, when people are boarding an airplane at the airport. You ever notice how, how people boarding the airplane, they all hurry up and they gather up right around the gate. They don't wait. It's like you have a ticket, you are going to get on the plane. It's not survival to fit us. Muscle out those who are around you and get your seat. No, you have a ticket. You're going to get on the plane. But we think we hurried in sometimes without anyone catching us or without, without uh, regard for, for whether or not we would be lost or left and, and whether or not the door would close ahead of us. And yet what we actually find in Scripture is that we were nowhere near the airport. Jesus actually came and got us and brought us with Him and invited us on the journey of following Him. Sometimes we lose our sense of trust in God as we look to the future because we've lost sight of or we've lost our sense of awe in how He has worked in our past. A good exercise that we can all employ when we are worried about what the future hold holds is to recount how God worked in us in bringing us to himself in the first place. Perhaps this afternoon or sometime in your time in God's word and prayer in the next few days, it would be a good exercise for your soul to slowly reflect on how God directed your path to the point where you came to faith in Jesus. And then praise him for ordering your steps in days past as He walked you down, unbeknownst to you even, as He walked you down paths of His grace. And then know as you turn your focus from the past to the future, know that this same grace will guard you as you walk that path that He would have for you in the future. Just as an aside, if you're here with us and you're seeing Luke 5 and you're not yet a Christian, perhaps God has ordered your steps in a manner where you are here today and you're seeing this in God's word that you might encounter his son Jesus Christ. We oftentimes talk of fate, we oftentimes talk of destiny, we talk of the universe ordering our steps. We 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 shake our magic eight balls, we eat our fortune cookies. We want to believe that the direction and purposes of our lives are not left to cold, harsh realities, left simply to chance. May you see that whatever it is that has brought you to this point, maybe it is Jesus getting into the boat of your life. So, Jesus specifically pursues his disciples. And I hope we can all reflect on that this morning and as we go. But secondly, he doesn't just specifically pursue his disciples, but he showcases his power to his disciples. We see this in verses 6 through 10. Interestingly, having gotten into his boat, Jesus into Simon's boat, Jesus now turns his direct attention directly to Simon. Well, actually, jump back to verse four, and we'll pick up for the sake of the context of it. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let your nets let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and they filled both the boats so that they began to sink. Let me tell you something that is important for all of us as we read, as we seek to understand God's Word. We have to carefully, attentively, slowly read our Bibles, the stories, the events, the ways they are told, the ways they are recounted to us, none of them are accidents. And yet, if we are not attentive in our Bible reading, we can miss important details that illuminate all that we are supposed to see. I share that with you because that happened to me some as I worked through this text this week. As I worked through this text, I found that I was in danger of chalking up something due to familiarity and missing some of what I needed to see and what we need to see in order to understand and apply this text. Here's what I mean. You read this story, perhaps you've read this story, perhaps you've read it many times, maybe even 30, 40, 50 times in your life, and you think, oh look, another miracle performed by Jesus. They're actually becoming quite commonplace at this point in Luke's gospel. But we have to remember the trajectory, and here's what we can subtly miss if we aren't aware of it. We have to remember the trajectory of Simon's story up to this point. Remember how his mother-in-law in in Luke 4, she was healed of her sickness. Now Jesus jumps in Simon's boat and tells him to sail out into the lake in in the middle of the day and he will catch fish. But Simon does what? He, he, He subtly, politely objects. Why would he do so? I've never asked myself that question until this week. Why did Simon object? Jesus just healed his mother-in-law. Why didn't Simon respond by saying, absolutely, whatever you say, you name it? Here's what's going on. Simon objects and reminds Jesus, he says to him, we toiled all night and took nothing. He reminds Jesus that he is a professional fisherman. And that he has been fishing all night in these waters nighttime fishing would have been far more advantageous. In Simon's day, they used these massive nets that they would just troll through the water and try to catch fish. And in the daytime, with the sunlight beating down on the waters, it would be so much easier for the fish to see the nets. And so, Simon's saying, if we didn't catch anything at night, we are not going to catch anything here in the middle of the day. Come on, Jesus. He's saying it probably with with, with a polite nature, you know, he's, he's tired. He wants to go home and rest. And Jesus probably seems like he doesn't really. Simon's thinking, okay, Jesus, you need to stick to the healings. You, you don't really understand how fishing works. I'm reminded of times when I've taken my car to the garage to get something worked on or get something checked out. And, you, you know, maybe you've been in this boat where you're trying to explain to the mechanic what's wrong with your car. And you're like, well, it's kind of making a funny sound. And, like, well, what kind of sound? And you're like, you know, you know, you start to try to make it and, and in the moment you realize how ridiculous you sound, the mechanic's like, all right, we'll, we'll, we'll try to figure it out. I think Simon is kind of like the mechanic where he's like, okay, Jesus, stop trying to make sounds and explain how all this is going to work or explain what the problem is. I'll take you out on the boat. I'll show you. It's just not happening, okay? But here's what's going on. In the story of Simon's life, He has trusted Jesus with that thing that was beyond his power, that was beyond his expertise, that thing namely being his mother-in-law's health. But he does not yet trust Jesus with that which he considers himself to be an expert in, fishing. And what we have to understand as we follow Jesus is that we don't just follow Him as a means of Him being our guru, where He helps us with the things that we need help with, where we call upon Him in the midst of the sickness, we call upon Him in the midst of the difficulty with a family member, we call upon Him in the things that we feel out of our lane with, or out of our our own capabilities with, and yet we keep Him at a distance when it comes to the things that we consider ourselves to be experts in. No, 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 no. What Simon is showing us, what Luke is showing us as he records us, what Jesus is showing us is that he is showing us that he is supremely powerful in all things and all who will follow him surrender not only the, their weaknesses before him but also their strengths. I still remember an Old Testament course that I took in seminary where we had to write research papers that were 10, 12, 15 pages long. I remember writing and writing and writing and mining the depths of the Old Testament that I had never traversed before. At the time, Amanda and I were dating or maybe engaged, and I knew that she was a skilled writer. She knows English. Her grandmother was an English teacher and professor, and she knew writing, and she taught Amanda how to write. And so I gave Amanda one of my Old Testament research papers. She you know, just hey, just... Put some edits on this, you know, clean up the grammar if you need to. It probably, you know, it won't probably take you 15, 20 minutes tops, that kind of thing. I figured she'd give me back this paper and, you know, oh, there's a red mark and turn a few pages more. Oh, there's another red mark. Yeah, I forgot a comma there, you know, and I get it back and it looks like a bunch of red pins and highlighters just exploded on top of it. Amanda literally was not able to get the paper done. She had devoted hours to it, and she had gotten through a couple of pages. I was humiliated. I considered myself to be this gifted writer, able to skillfully articulate my thoughts, able to lay out the research that I had done, and I gave it to her thinking that it was going to serve her, and she'd say, oh, wow, how blessed I am to be engaged to a man who knows the Old Testament so well. What happened is her keen insight, her her eye for proper grammar and good writing exposed the reality of how incapable I really was. It's funny, but how many of us and how much when we consider and take stock of our own lives, how the problem with us is not the places where we're weak, the problem is with us is the places where we consider ourselves strong. If somebody comes up to me today and says, Stephen, why aren't you playing in the Super Bowl? I say, well, I don't, my football career was cut short long ago. The talent level only reached to a certain point, and I didn't get to the Super Bowl. And that's going to be something I shrug off, and I'm not even going to remember the conversation later. But if someone comes to me later and says, Stephen, why aren't you a very good pastor? That's going to cut a lot more deeply, right? Why? Because that's something that's more central to who I am. We don't have a problem trusting Jesus with our weaknesses. The problem that we have is that we hold our strengths off as something that we rest in. And we don't want him to expose those and to take authority and ownership over those in our lives. But that is what Simon is showing us, what Luke is showing us about Simon as we seek to follow Christ. And this is why, and this is how we get to verse 8. When Simon Peter saw it, after, remember, his nets have been full, and they're hauling them in, and they get them into multiple boats, and the boats are starting to sink. And look at verse 8. When Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. We're going to look at these words in just a moment, but first I want us to think about the words. If we're going to understand what he did say, I want us to understand what he didn't say, okay? So work, just hang on with me here. They didn't get all the fish hauled in, and Simon then says to Jesus, okay, think about this if you're in Simon's shoes, all right? Everybody think about this with me. They didn't get all the fish hauled in during the daytime, and Simon say, oh, Jesus, this is really good. In fact, may I interest you in a stake in my fishing business? You want 40%, 50%, 60%? Whatever, okay, that's fine. You come join me on these waters. We can fish during the day. No more having to do the graveyard shift. And I'll give you all the profits you want. You just be tied to my boat. No, Simon doesn't do that. Why does he not do that? Wouldn't you and I do that? No, he begged him to leave. And the reason he begged him to leave is that this encounter, in in this encounter, Jesus revealed two staggering realities to Simon. He revealed who Jesus is and who Simon is. First, he revealed who Jesus is. Who is this man that has gotten into my boat? Look at verse 5. Do you see how Simon addresses Jesus? Go back and look at verse 5. Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. He called him master. That word for master is, is like teacher, authority. One who I respect. Yeah, one who's in a position of authority over me. One who's greater than me. But it's not quite God. He says to him, master, come on. I'll try to let down the nets and you can see that we're not going to catch anything. But now look at how Simon Peter in verse 8 addresses Jesus. Depart from me, for I am a sinful man. He doesn't say, O Master, but he says, O Lord. Do you see that? That Second, Lord, it denotes the realization that God himself has gotten into his boat. This is the God who created him. This is the God who commands the winds that sweep across the lake. This is the God who numbers the stars in the sky. This is the God who, by his word or without even saying a word, can order massive schools of fish exactly where to swim in in the lake. He is not a God that we negotiate with when it comes to authority in our lives, He's a God who calls us to surrender all aspects of our lives to him and recognize our great need for him. So in this, Simon realizes who Jesus is, but he also realizes who Simon is. Simon fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. You see how Jesus prepared Simon to follow him by exposing to him his total unworthiness before him? The person that Jesus uses is the person who trembles in the presence of God. It is not the person who treats him as a guru who can offer advice where needed. But it is God who has come to us. Let's resolve this right here, dear church. Let's resolve that we are not going to be a people who welcome the miracles of Jesus, but refuse to see our own sinfulness and unworthiness before Him. How many times do we talk of wanting to be greatly used by Jesus, wanting to be greatly used by God, but we refuse to be greatly humbled by Him? You know how to know whether or not you're in the right place In regards to your usefulness before Jesus as you follow him? Do you see your smarts? Do you see your own perspective? Do you see your own intellect? Do you see your own strengths? Do you see your own abilities as things that Jesus could rightly use? Or do you see your unworthiness and say, Lord, have mercy upon me? He has all the gifts, He does not need our gifts. What he will use is those who recognize their unworthiness before him. And so how do we bridge this gap when we are sitting here and we're seeing Jesus standing before us and we are thinking in our hearts, depart from me. The gap is not bridged by hiding that reality, but the gap is bridged by stepping into the reality. Simon was more ready to draw near Jesus when he felt totally unworthy than when he was trying to be polite to him and tell him how he should fish. And this is just total speculation on my part. Take it as nothing more than speculation, not authoritative, not anything. But if you go through this passage, he's first referred to as Simon Peter in verse 8. Previously he's Simon, Luke chapter 4 he's Simon, but now he's Simon Peter, and Simon Peter is what he will be known as through the rest of the New Testament. I wonder if he will be known as this one for the rest of the New Testament, because this is the first place where he finally sees Jesus as he must be seen. I don't know, just speculation on my part, I don't know if Luke is trying to show us that, but speculation. Speculation. So Jesus shows his power to his disciples. Jesus specifically pursues his disciples. And thirdly, Jesus sets apart his disciples. Follow along in verses 9 and 10. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, "'Do not be afraid. From now on you will be catching men.' In this moment, Jesus commissioned Simon, the fisherman, to become Simon the disciple, Simon the apostle who would serve Jesus. Ironically, he previously brought fish from life to death. That's what fishing is. You catch live fish and you make them, I'll keep it sanitary for younger ears, you make them not as alive. But now he is going to work to bring men and women from spiritual death to life. He would travel around with Jesus. He will be sent by Jesus, tell others about Jesus. He will serve a pivotal role in establishing the church throughout the book of Acts. And there is a fantastic Old Testament feel to this passage. At various times through the Old Testament, servants of God would be struck by their own unworthiness in the presence of God. And you see that yet again here, where Simon begs Jesus to depart from him. And then you see more of this when Jesus responds, what? Do not be afraid. You see that. It is a wonderful, fascinating flow to this, of how God shows us throughout this passage how he uses those who seem to be unfit to serve him, how they are the ones that he uses to serve him. But consider this flow. First, at the beginning of the story, Jesus does what? He, in a way, fishes for Peter. He pursues Peter. Then he shows Peter, he provides for Peter as he fishes. He fishes for Peter, he provides for Peter as he fishes, and third here, what? He commissions Peter to go fish. The miracle of the massive haul of fish served multiple purposes. The miracle's primary purpose, yes, is to reveal to Simon where he did not yet trust Jesus. And that would be something for all of us to take into consideration as we consider this passage. Not where are the places that I do trust Jesus, but where are the places in my life that I refuse to trust Jesus. But secondly, I think there's another purpose here to encourage Simon that after he's commissioned, that he will be a fisherman, that he will fish for men. It's as if Jesus wants Simon to know, I, Jesus, who commissions you, I want you to know that I don't send you out with my best wishes and hopes of good luck and go get them, tiger. No, 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 no. He sends him out with Simon's heart anchored to the power of God, knowing that this Jesus who has sent me, he controls the schools of fish, he can bring them into my nets, and if he can do that, then he can work in hearts and bring them into nets as this gospel is proclaimed. This is what we need to be reminded of, dear church. As we think about our evangelism, as we think about our attempts to make disciples, as we think about all the ways, all the reasons why we think others would reject the gospel, would push back upon the gospel, would not believe in these claims of Christ, and the authority of God's Word. We need to recognize that the one who sends us is the one who controls and leads and works in power in bringing the fish into the nets. That's why prayer is such a central heartbeat of our life together as a church. And it is why we can look at ourselves and say, I am unfit for this task. We can say, yeah, you are. So am I. But let us look to Jesus who makes us fit for the task. How often in your life when you've thought of somebody that you were sharing the gospel with or that that even you're just called to, to, to simple faithfulness in Christ, in serving Him in tricky or difficult situations, how often have you thought to yourself, oh, Jesus, couldn't you have used someone a little more gifted? Perhaps their mind is a little sharper. Perhaps they have a tongue that is a little more eloquent in speech. And you recall this passage that Jesus uses those who are unfit because he has made them fit. And he tells you and he tells us, do not be afraid. And so the only question that lies before us is how will we respond? Look at how Simon and James and John, they responded, verse 11, and when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. This was a unique occurrence in the days of Jesus. It is doubtful that we will all need to leave everything and follow him literally in a metaphorical sense. Simon sold the fishing business. He may have literally burned the boats, you know that analogy. He probably sold them but he left everything and followed Jesus. The danger that we face is that we want to follow Jesus, but we can't bring ourselves to leave the boats and to follow him. We can't can't bring ourselves to lay down our nets and follow him. We can't bring ourselves to fall down before him and say, have mercy upon me, I am a sinner. We can't bring ourselves to see our own unworthiness, our own uncleanness. Rather, Jesus shows us that those are the things that we must see in order to follow Him. And then we surrender control of our lives and we walk out in obedience to Him. Whatever that looks like. As Jesus, as we surrender control of our calendar, as we consider con- sur- surrender control of our plans, as we consider, con- consider, surrender control, I never thought I would sur- sur- struggle over such words. We give total authority to Him in these things, and we recognize that He is worthy of that authority and that He can be trusted with that authority. And we find a glorious experience of his power and of his presence with us at work in his servants who were once unfit, who have been made fit by him solely by seeing their unfitness and by crying out to him. If you ever find yourself in Porto, Portugal, to go have a Big Mac at the most beautiful McDonald's in the world, you might enjoy a bite or two of the burger but you will soon be captivated by the scenery that surrounds you. The averageness of the burger will not be at the top of your mind. That's the wonder of God's work as He draws near to us and works in us, as Christ commissions us to follow Him. As we serve Him, our averageness, even our weaknesses, they are secondary, they are distant. But the beauty of Jesus who draws near will stand first and foremost and outshine us. We know from the record of Simon's ministry that people did not look at him and say, oh, Simon, you are so impressive. Tell us more about you. No, Simon's ministry was one where he proclaimed an impressive Lord who came to him, who met him in his weaknesses and then met him in his strengths, who filled his nets with fish to show him that he is the one who is Lord over the seas. And he has shown us his sufficiency over our strengths. And in doing so, he shows us our weakness. And he shows us that Jesus makes seemingly unfit people to be his disciples. Will we leave everything and follow him?